The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dan. This is Hard Knocks Talks. Today's guest, Saskatoon man, Andre Polyev dedicated his life to working with people on the edge. Today, he walks alongside recovering gang members who have chosen a path to healing, many of whom I call friends, and together they offer solutions and carry a message of hope to anyone who will listen. Good morning, Andre. Morning, Daniel. How are you today? I'm pretty good for uh, an old bugger. (laughs) No, I'm doing all right. (laughs) So um, I I feel like this episode's been a long time coming. Um, I've, I've thought often about inviting you on but for some reason it didn't feel like it was time yet so um recently when Chantel finally she just come up on my messenger one day and said hey here's Andre's number I'm like I guess it's time <laughs> okay so so here we are thank you uh, yeah is there is there anything that you'd like to say before we jump no, in No I'm just happy to be here um I didn't know anything about you till I got here <laughs> uh and asked a few people, and uh, they had a question mark in their face when I said hard knock talks. So this is good. It's going to maybe help you with some uh, the, the people that I live with, elderly people who mm-hmm. are not accustomed to this kind of a, of a media. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. Well, let's jump in. This is Hard Knocks Talks. All right, if you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost a loved one to drug-related harms, reach out to Stronger Together Canada, peer-led support groups by Mums Stop the Harm, and or Naranon groups of Saskatchewan. If you're in search of private addictions treatment, check out Prairie Sky Recovery Centre located in Libsig, Saskatchewan. To make contact or learn more about today's sponsors, check out our new merch, or if you want to show us some love and buy us a coffee, all of those links are in the show notes below. So... Let's see, where do we even start? My name is Andre. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Is that a fact? Yes. Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, before we get into all of all of what we're here to talk about, um, why don't we uh, talk about a little about yourself? I hear you traveled the world. I hear you drank good vodka in Russia. Uh, that's what all I know from Chantel. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your journey, man. Like, tell us how you got here. Well, I'm from Prudhomme, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. little town east of here, French Catholic. Um, I was brought up in a good home, but there was two factors that determined uh, the eventual decisions that I made and the uh, the relationships that I developed. Well, one of them was that I spent. Uh, Seven years, from five years old to 12 years old in a boarding school, which we call residential school. Hmm. Um, not because of any other reason than we were too far from the, from the schools mm-hmm. and on the farm and during the wintertime. So, but that meant that between five years to 12 years old, 80% of my time was away from home. Hmm. So that had a big impact on my relationship. And developing my relationship with not only my family, but people in general. Mm -hmm. Where I live in the seniors' home right now, one lady came up to me and she said she was new here. She said, I hear you're you're independent. I said, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. I'm very independent mm. <laughs> because, <laughs> and and I, I I claim that that history goes back to seven years, where I had to survive on my own in a residential school, boarding school, whatever name you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Those things were all the same, and that was in in the forties. Mm -hmm. The other thing is though that I was brought up in a home where, for whatever reason, and no judgments are made, but um, my brother and my sisters they were they were uh, older than me, and I was the younger one, the fledging, who didn't belong. Mm. And so those two events in my life, at an early age, had an impact that lasted all my life and still. Had, has an impact today. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to know that if you want to find out who you are, you got to look at where you come from. Mm -hmm. And uh, my family is very Catholic. Mm -hmm. And on my dad's side, uh, the man who baptized me was a Catholic priest, my, my dad's uncle. Mm -hmm. And my godfather was also a Catholic priest on my mother's side. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was brought up in an environment and, and boarding school Hundred percent Catholic, of course. Did you care, harbor any resentments towards any of that? Did, did, oh no, no, no! It just uh, was normal, natural, and it wasn't an imposition by default. Mm -hmm. It was a, uh, it was a, a required. If I had to go to school, I had to go to school, and mm -hmm. we were too far away from my parents to bring me to school with the horses uh, thirty below during the winter time, mm -hmm. and so this this was necessary. Mm -hmm. So there's no resentment there. Mm -hmm. But it did have a major impact on what type of a person I became. Mm -hmm. And I had to analyze that. And I'll go through that when I talk about my addiction. Mm -hmm. So I decided at that time, by default, I think, mm -hmm. because and I didn't know what else to do, would become a priest. So I was ordained a Catholic priest with the Diocese of Saskatoon in 1962. How old were you? I was 25. 25. Mm -hmm. I was content here in Saskatoon. I liked what I was doing, but there was there was a, a gnawing uh, anxiety that what I was doing, I wanted something different, and I didn't know what. Mm. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know, but I just knew that I had to look for what I was searching for. Is that making sense? Absolutely, it does. I'm doing that to this day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm 87, so I'm not doing that anymore. But anyways... <laughs> And so seven years after my ordination, I would have been 29, 28, 27, whatever, I decided I had to go search for it. Mm -hmm. In Saskatoon, I would not have found it. Mm -hmm. Decided to go to study in Montreal, in Paris, and uh, religious adult ed. Mm -hmm. While I was in Paris, you know, I spent the next 10 years of my life searching everywhere and every time and every place not finding what I was looking for. And that's when I went to Russia. Mm. I thought, what's going on in communist Russia in 1968? Mm -hmm. Been in the middle of the Cold War. So, a... Hang on now. When you, were, when you were doing this at this time in your life, you were a, pra you were a priest here in Saskatoon. So, right. Had you already started? Now, in the intro, we talked about you were working with people on the edge. Had you already found that? No. Okay. I was teaching at uh, St. Paul's High School, an all-boys school, which became E.D. Fian. Mm -hmm. I was a parish priest at the French parish here in Saskatoon. I was chaplain at City Hospital, mm -hmm. and I joined the the military. I thought maybe that that was a good place to start, so uh, I was chaplain for the, the Air Force here. Mm. But I I was content, but I was not—I was still searching. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I knew I had to go find out something. I didn't know what it was, what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. While I was in Paris, I decided uh, to, to go see what was communism all about, politically, economically, culturally, socially. Mm-hmm. And so made arrangements with the University of Moscow to go there and spend a month, two weeks in Moscow, Leningrad. And of course, I found out that what I was looking for <laughs> was not to be found in, in the communist world. Mm. I went to Czechoslovakia, then I went to South America, to Brazil, to Rio, mm-hmm. uh, Maceo, and and spent time in the favelas. I don't know if you know the word favelas. I don't. The word favelas is like the hood, ghettos, okay. where poor people live. Mm-hmm. And um, Had you ever seen that before? No. Anything like it? No. Okay. But, uh, boy, that was an eye-awakening. But I realized that as badly as that was, that wasn't for me. That's not what I, I couldn't contribute to anything to anyone over there. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it was part of my journey. Uh, while I was back in Saskatoon, I'd spend my summer a couple times in Chicago with the World Council of Churches. I went to spent time in, in the ghettos of Chicago, working with the black communities, mm-hmm. with the people that are the criminals and the, and the people. So I learned another area of people on the edge. Mm-hmm. See, these are all people on the edge that I'm talking about. Was there judgment? Like when you first oh, came no. into contact with these communities and you saw what was going on, was there ever even a moment in your mind that it was like, what's wrong with these people? No, never. Mm-hmm. No, no, this is the reality. And I don't know anything about it, mm. and I can't judge for sure. And I was impressed, and I was. But my question was, is this where I belong? Mm. And I realized, no, that's not where I belong. And I still was searching, so I got involved with the draft dodgers. I got involved with those people and from the other states who had the Vietnam War. I was helping, but. That wasn't that wasn't what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1972. I was parish priest at St. Michael's Parish on 33rd Street. Mm-hmm. I was living in one of the lower time houses, and then heard a knock at the door. Went to the door, and a 20 year old, 25 year old, 28 year old, 30 year old Native guy was at the door. I didn't know Native people. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, somebody told me that if I came here, whoever was here would listen to me. For sure. We sat on the back porch. It was hot in August. He told me a story. Mm-hmm. It was uh, an amazing, horrendous story. He was from uh, northern Saskatoon, Duck Lake, or One Arrow, Beer Diesel, One Arrow. His mom and dad had attended uh, St. Michael's Residential School in Duck Lake. He... Uh, attended that school from the time he was five years old to 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Once he was out of the school, um, 13, 14 years, he was a young offender at Kilburn Hall. He was 19, 20, he was at the Saskatoon Correctional Center. A few years later, he was in the PA pen. Now he's 28, 29 years old, he's an addict, and he's on the streets. Mm. I had never heard anything like that. I'm still tearing just thinking about it. So I said, whoa, I've been searching around the world. And I didn't look in my backyard. Mm. 
So that was in 72. Then I started thinking, well, I got to go find out who these people are. Were you still drinking at this time? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was a performer drinking. You know, performing in the sense that I could drink every day and I never Mm. get tight occasionally. But I was drinking to kill that, to empty that emptiness that I had experienced at the boarding school Mm -hmm. and that I had experienced in my home. Mm -hmm. And I'm not judging people here. There's no judgments. Mm -hmm. It's just the reality Mm -hmm. that I had to deal with. And, you know, when five o'clock came, that night it wasn't vodka by the way <laughs> it was canadian stuff <laughs> okay <laughs> and um so i was a performing drink i was drinking all the time mm-hmm. uh, every day and uh, but I, it never bothered me to the point that i wasn't able to perform and do what i needed to do was there a connection like did you see a connection at the time like no these not, were a, struggling? Bit. not oh, a bit not a bit you were different it just than felt that? good yeah yeah okay that emptiness that i didn't realize was there mm-hmm those few drinks, yeah. it's all I needed. Yeah, medicine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just killed that anxiety, that, that emptiness, that, that, that well, discomfort mm-hmm. that I felt all the time. And mm-hmm. But at 5 o'clock, it was, uh, and, so, anyways. When did, uh, so you, you hear this impactful story yeah. um, that, that, that is impactful to you to this day. What was your next course of action? Did that was that like a pivotal moment for it you? It was. Okay. So I took a leave of absence from the diocese. Mm-hmm. I went to. I was working volunteering at the co-op college in Sutherland at that time. Doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. With a guy by the name of Holy Turnbull, mm-hmm. he used to be the minister of education in our province, and he navigated me, steered me towards the Arctic. Mm-hmm. He said there's 32 co-ops in the Arctic. And uh, they want to develop a training program for their own people so that mm-hmm. their young people can become um, can become at some level in the management of their stores. And I said, whoa, co-ops, Native people, put it all together. The Arctic. The Arctic. Because I knew I would never find anything about Native people in Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. I had to leave, and I had to go someplace where nobody knew me. So in January of 78, I jumped in my, February of 78, jumped in my truck, drove to Yellowknife, didn't know anybody, but that's where Canadian Arctic Co-op Federation Limited office was, mm-hmm. went there, and they were advertising for a training coordinator, applied mm-hmm. for the job. I knew I'd get the job. Mm-hmm. I just knew I would. <laughs> yeah. Got the job, spent three years in the Arctic developing and implementing a management training program for young Inuit and Denny uh, members of each community. There was 32 co-ops, 32 communities. Okay, so th- this was about um, teaching the community's management skills? No, I was training individual, uh, individual person, like a young man would be training in the store mm, to, okay. be, to arrive at some management level. Okay, so you're not yet working with people who are coming out of addictions? Or no, 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 I'm, I'm oh. getting to know Native people. Right, okay. Uh, so that's where I started. Mm-hmm. And so got, and then, uh, then after the three years with working with the trainees, I spent three years working with the board of directors. Mm-hmm. So I was doing adult education program, and that's my background. Mm. I'm an adult educator. Six years, I came back to Saskatoon, and then I knew a little bit about First Nations people Mm -hmm. before I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. I had lived with the people, hunted with the people, 
slept on the floor with the kids and the, because of, in, in the 70s, there was no hotels and motels in many of those little communities. Mm -hmm. There are 68 communities in the Arctic. I've been to 62 of them. So I got to know First Nations people in the Arctic. Hmm. Came back to Saskatoon, taught at Oskayak School. You heard of it? Yes, down the street. Saskatoon Native Survival when, when I started there in 85. Mm -hmm. Stayed there 10 years. Got to know Saskatoon Native people. Mm -hmm. Got to know the Young Offenders Program. Got to know the Correctional Center. Got to know the courts. Got to know the police. Got to know lawyers and prosecutors. You know, it sounds to me like this is a well-laid-out plan. No, like, did it you just know you're just flying by the seat of your pants? Oh, definitely. Man, I can relate but I was always looking for something. Yeah, yeah. And I was finding it mm -hmm. and responding to it. And so this grew on me. And uh, 10 years at Oskayak School, seven years as chaplain, coordinating chaplain at the Correctional Center. So I know the Correctional Center really well. Mm -hmm. I know penal, the penal processes, whether it's Kilburn Hall, uh, Correctional, or the Penitentiary. In, 19, in 2002, I'm 65 years old. Mm -hmm. So I retired. Uh, I had none to do, so I was spending most of my time on 20th Street. While I was on 20th Street, one day two guys come up to me, guys that I knew, one from the school. Mm -hmm. I'll say Brian, not his last name, just Brian. And the other guy I had met in jail. His name is Sherman. These two guys came up to me and said, we want to get out of the gangs. That was in 2002. The gangs had started coming in Saskatoon in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. And I knew what gangs were all about because of the jail. And they said, we need to get out of our gang. Brian said, I have to get out of my gang because my partner got stabbed by a rival gang, his partner, and he said, I have a nine-month-year-old daughter. I have to raise her. Mm -hmm. I can't be a gang member and raise her. And Sherman said, I got two younger brothers that are following in my footsteps. I don't want them to be gang members. Mm -hmm. So I have to get get out of the gangs. And they, and they said, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. We, we know we're going to get beaten out, but what next? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have no idea. Mm. Let's see where it goes. Mm -hmm. That's how it started. That was how and then uh, the last 22 years of my life has been spent working uniquely um, with young men and women who want to get out of the gang system. Mm. So that's a little bit of my story. Mm -hmm. So... In all in all of that, what what have been like your strongest like personal biases that you've had to overcome um, to do this work effectively? I don't think I ever had a, a an identifiable bias. I was a guy who was had an emptiness. Mm -hmm. And I think I related that emptiness to other people. And I knew when they had that emptiness. Mm -hmm. And there was no judgment there. Mm -hmm. There was never a time when it's uh, a bugger, he needs to pick up his boots. And that when I was in Brazil, when I was in Russia, when I was in, in with the black people, there was never any judgment there. It was all, that's reality. Mm -hmm. And... I wasn't progressive enough to analyze the root causes of that. Mm -hmm. But I've done a lot of that in the last 20 years. How come people 
end up in those situations. Mm -hmm. um, and every story explains why they ended up in that story. And every time you hear that story, you realize that they're victims of their stories. They're victims of their past, like I was. Mm -hmm. And mine was a mild mm -hmm. victimization compared to theirs. But I could relate to it. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't help but wonder, um, when you talk, were talking earlier about being in a, in a residential school, um, did you see anything in those schools like you know, we we all we hear the stories, yeah. we hear the horrific stories, and we and we we see the body count rising and rising. Right. Um, was that part of your experience? Did you witness those things? Uh, well, I I witnessed being strapped, and but that was common, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, except for me, it was more common. Than, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit of a rebel mm -hmm. from day one. I didn't know what I was rebelling against, but mm -hmm. I was. But. Uh, um, no, there was never in my, I never had to overcome that. Mm. And somehow, on the contrary, I was attracted to that. Mm. And I think it's because my emptiness could feel their emptiness. And so there was an attraction there and, and there was no judgment. No, mm. there still isn't. I'm, 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 that's a blessing, I guess. I never thought of the thought. You were asking me that. First yeah. time I, I, I have to think about that. Mm -hmm. When did you quit drinking? I was uh, <laughs> I was teaching at a sky high and telling the kids don't drink, don't do drugs, mm -hmm. and here I go home and have a good shot of rye and mm -hmm. and I'm saying oh I got a problem, mm -hmm. and I realized that my drinking was getting more intense and I was drinking longer at night and I said this is really not what I want, mm -hmm. and so that would have been in nineteen ninety one. Hmm. 90s, 89, 90s. I went to two treatment centers. Did it ever really become like, you know, we hear a lot of stories about how, where alcoholism, where addiction can take us. Did it ever really become a, a serious problem for you? It was that, becoming. Like, okay. It was not there, but it was becoming. Mm -hmm. It would have become, mm -hmm. no doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I realized that uh, I needed to do something about it and I used that as an opportunity to educate myself about addictions, mm -hmm. deal with my own issues, but also I'm an educator. So that was, so I decided to go to a treatment center in Toronto for two and a half months. And then I decided to go to a First Nation treatment center in the Okanagan Valley with the Okanagan First Nations at Round Lake mm -hmm. for a month and a half. Mm -hmm. I wanted to experience both sides of the, you know, the Western approach to dealing with addiction and First Nations approached. Mm -hmm. And that that was inspiring, both experiences. So why the draw towards the Indigenous? You know, uh, um, do you think that that goes back to your experience in the residential school? No, it goes back to my search to walk with people on the edge mm -hmm. because I was on the edge. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And I would have, I could have ended up any place in the world. Mm-hmm until I found out that I didn't have to go anyplace else but stay in Saskatoon and mm -hmm. in Saskatchewan and in Canada. I'm interested to know, um, so you, you you started working with people to to get out of gangs. Now, very early on, and maybe to this day, maybe you can enlighten us on, on a lot of different things, I'm sure, but what was the biggest challenge? Like, were you seeing any patterns? Like, this was the thing that we need to work on the most? Like, what were your biggest challenges? The biggest challenge was to how do you move from being a gangster 
where you hurt people and you hurt yourself and you hate yourself and you hate the world? How do you move from being that, whether you're Native, whether you're Black, whether you're white, whether you're Catholic, whether you're atheist, whether you're mm-hmm. Islamic? How do you move from that situation to a place where you're a loving, healthy person? Mm. That was always my question. How do you move from one to the other? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never they can do it alone. Mm-hmm. I had learned by by going to treatment that you don't recover by yourself, mm-hmm. and so I had learned. I learned a lot from being an addict, mm-hmm. even if you it was do. A, oh tons. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that uh, one of the conditions for joining straight up is to be honest and humble. Mm-hmm. I learned that from step one of. 12-step program, mm-hmm. to admit. If you don't admit, you're not going to be, you can't move. Mm-hmm. Can't fix what you don't know. That's right. So to admit that your life is unmanageable and that the only way you can turn it around is if you have a higher power that you define for yourself, mm-hmm. not somebody else defines it for you. Mm-hmm. So those two qualities became fundamental in my personal life and in my work with the gangs. If you want to join straight up, you have to be honest. You have to be humble. Mm-hmm. That's that, a requirement. And and that you saw success. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 They became four conditions, five conditions for joining straight up, and those are number three and four. Mm. What did it look like the first time someone went back out who you were working with, like, through straight up? What do you mean went back out? Like, surely, you know, people will come to you and, and seek help and do well for a while, and then they will relapse. Oh, they slip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go back oh, to the life. Something it's like normal. That. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. It'd be weirder if it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It happens all the time. Yeah. They might not go back to the gangs. Once they're out of the gangs, the gangs won't want them back. Mm. No way. Mm-hmm. But they'll go back to their addiction. Mm. But mm-hmm. uh, I've seen guys go back to a gang. Um, yeah. Yeah. But they're different then. They're still they they've they've moved. They have more empathy. They have they're not as violent and as cruel and as vicious mm-hmm. unless they're unless they're high or drunk. Mm. Once they're high, then drunk, they go back to their old ways. Have you ever um, had any trouble with the gangs? Have there ever been people be like, "Hey, you're taking our membership"? No. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where my seven years in jail and my ten years at the school. Mm-hmm. I knew all these guys. I'd go to the jail, and I, I knew who was a gang member, mm-hmm. and I liked them, and they liked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were friends. Mm-hmm. And the higher ups, I remember on Twentieth Street, I was walking one day, and I saw this uh, higher up, you know, way up, one of the or leaders in the gang, mm-hmm. run across the street to give me a big hug, because I had known him in jail, and I'd been just dealt with him like anybody else. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I hate that line, but (laughs) um, I straight up is grateful to the gangs Mm -hmm. because the gangs have never attacked straight up. The first two years, some of our members were beat up for for leaving the gang. Mm -hmm. Like beyond their minute? Yeah, by rival gangs. Okay. Or by even guys who were angry that they left. Mm-hmm. But after 
they realized that they had joined straight up. We didn't have a name then, but that they were part of our organization, whatever. Because mm -hmm. the first year, there was only two or three, but it took about three years. We were 15, 20. I mean, it just exploded in numbers. Mm -hmm. And it became obvious that something was happening here with all these guys who were joining Father Andre's gang. <laughs> was that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Or Andre's gang. You're the higher up now. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's Andre's gang. They're yeah. like, oh, he's Andre's gang. Mm. Until the guy said, we don't want to be called Andre's gang. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, what do you want to be called? Uh -huh. So we talked it out, bounced it around, and one young man had written me a, a note thanking me for what I had done, and he had signed it straight up. And I had put that on my fridge in my house, and we we had about a dozen individuals talking about the name. And I said, what about this, straight up? And they said, oh, perfect. Can you tell us who the name of the guy that wrote the letter? Brendan, but I won't say his last name. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was from Attack Group Reserve, but that's all I'm going to say. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah. So, so what do you do now? Like you, you, you were working with people, you're having some success. They're coming out of the gangs. They're starting to heal and, and live productive lives. What are you, what are you doing with them? In the beginning. Well, once they've uh, graduated, <laughs> uh -huh. I don't. Once they've stabilized, we have three goals, three objectives, and our goals and everything we do has to be said in ways that, you know, someone with barely an, any education can understand. Mm -hmm. So our goals, our objectives are threefold. Number one, to be a loving parent. Everybody knows what that means. You don't have to identify, uh, explain it. The second objective is to be a faithful partner. Again, everybody knows what that means. Mm -hmm. And the third one is to be a responsible citizen. That's our objective. Mm -hmm. Once you've reached that level, loving parent, responsible, uh, loving, a faithful partner, responsible citizen, they live their life. And we have numerous Males and females that are now living their life. Mm -hmm. They're on back on the reserves, they're in Winnipeg, they're in mm -hmm. Saskatoon, they're in Regina. Popping off on Facebook. Popping off on Facebook. Named Chantel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Rodney and Owen, yeah. and I can yeah. name them a whole bunch of them, mm -hmm. hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. We've worked with hundreds and, of uh, young men and women, but not all Native. 80% were Native, mm -hmm. 85, 90%. But we've had blacks and we have all kinds. We've mm -hmm. had atheists and agnostics, and it's not a faith-based program, mm -hmm. but it's a spiritual-based program mm -hmm. because it's based on the values and the spiritual values of honesty and humility. Mm -hmm. That's why we're a spiritual program. Mm -hmm. when, did the, uh, when did the speaking start? I know um, right your, away. your organization goes into jails and into different institutions and, and does yeah, speaking. Yeah, no, but it's, it started. When I was at the jail, I had developed a program inside the jail to explain the root causes of their being in jail. And I had used the medicine wheel, which I had acquired the information that I had acquired at uh, a kayak school. And uh, I had used that as a, as a model mm -hmm. of what it means to be a healthy person and how come you guys are in jail and how come you're hurting people. Not bad, not a good or bad thing. One is healthy, the other one is hurting. Mm -hmm. And the medicine wheel, I had developed that inside the jail. So once I was on the street, I used that same program in order for the guys to tell their stories. And uh, that's what we did right away. We got involved. 
within within a month we were doing presentations in the schools. Mm-hmm. I just we just did what I had done at the Skyak School. Mm-hmm. When I was at Skyak School, we had worked hard at turning our school from a place of learning only to a place of learning and healing. And we were named an exemplary school in Canada for that. Mm. And that was my my contribution to the school was to be clear that if a young lady got raped the night before, there's no way you're going to teach her biology the next day or mathematics. You got to deal with the with the with the rape. So you were you were you went into this eyes wide open. Oh, for sure. You, know, you what you just said there, you said it and didn't even flinch. You like, well, no, very... because it was real. It yeah. happened. Yeah. You know, this young lady got raped the night before. She's at school. She's sobbing. You think she's going to learn anything going on in school? Mm-hmm. She had no other safe place to go. Mm-hmm. And so we realized, I really pushed it. We got a grant. We brought in speakers from the University of Lesbridge to, to des- help us design what it meant, what it would mean for a school to be a place of learning. I went to uh, the States. I went to Santa Fe to visit a school, a cultural native school. I went to Oregon. Uh, they had a, a school that was associated to a treatment center. I went over there and did the research mm-hmm. and uh, to find out how else people are doing these things. Mm. Uh, and so that was always um, in the back of my mind. I'm an educator primarily, but firstly, and uh, I'm not a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a counselor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a social worker. Mm-hmm. And so everything that I do is always in terms of the development, of the process of learning, educating, and changing and transforming. Do you ever um, get any pushback from people because you're not Indigenous? No. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> I love them. Well, fair enough. I'm just, you know, yeah, these are the questions yeah, that no, come to fair mind. Enough. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I, love, I don't care if they're indigenous or black. or. But do they care that you're indigenous or black or white no. is what I'm saying? That they judge never... me by who I am, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. You know. So when you... when you, I've, I'd never feel threatened in any way, manner, or form by... You've never, ever once? Never. Really? No. When you brought the concept of um, turning uh, Osayak School here into a place of, of healing, uh, as well as education, was that like a new concept to most that you were pitching it to? Oh, for sure. So I remember one teacher said, I'm here to teach biology. I'm not here to do anything else. And I said, well, if you're not here to to help heal the students, you need to go to another school. I mean, isn't that education in itself? Well, <laughs> that person didn't want to become involved. Mm. And, and the professional the pro- professional world is very clear that you don't develop personal relationships. Mm. And if you're going to start doing some healing, you have to become, have a personal relationship. Rapport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's indispensable. Mm-hmm. You have to love that person as a person. Mm-hmm. You you say, well, I'm here to teach biology and that's it. Then yeah. good. Be a good bi- biological teacher, but but go someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're turfing people. Well, we're saying this is what we're all about mm-hmm. and you don't want to be what we're all about. It's like straight up. Mm-hmm. If you're not interested in assisting and helping and supporting young men and women get out of the gangs, all you want to do is provide services while we'll provide housing, 
uh, well, go someplace else. Go go where they do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to say where they do that. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in straight up, we don't provide services. Yeah. We're in the business of transformation. Yeah. So uh, you have a housing program now. By default. What does that mean? It means that uh, guys who come out of the jails have no place to go. Right. And so we're not in the business of providing housing for the general population. Right. Anybody can come. Right. No. No. In this case, it's because guys who join straight up in the pen primarily, but also in the correctional center, and that we've seen that thousands of times. Mm-hmm. They come out. They have no safe place to go. They've been in the gangs for six, seven, eight, ten years. Where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. They're going to go back to a to a trap house or a gang house. Mm-hmm. So that's what I meant by by default. It's not something that we want to do. Mm-hmm. It's not but, a for profit enterprise. Oh God, no. no, 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 no. And and it's to provide a secure, safe place for our members, where otherwise they wouldn't have a safe, secure. If they have a safe, secure place to go, mm-hmm. we don't want them at the housing. Mm-hmm. We'll help. Before we had housing, I would always help them find a place. But you know how it is today, particularly yeah. if you get out of jail mm-hmm. and you're very vulnerable, very, you know, I mean, all you know is uh, drugs and alcohol and violence for the last 10 years of your life. Mm-hmm. Transformation is, is a really it's a long uh, road. It's a big, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a Mount Everest climb. A couple so you, times. Yeah. You um you help people when they're getting out. What's what's this talk of let's hear about some of the challenges about people getting out that have maybe joined your organization or who are interested in, in healing in any capacity. No, the, the 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 big the big challenge is addiction. Okay. Once you deal with addiction, everything is possible. Mm-hmm. If you don't deal with your addiction, nothing is possible. It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And if you're an addict, you're an addict. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. I do. If you if you're using. Yeah. And so our members, if they're using, they have to go to treatment, they have to go to detox, they have to do whatever it is, and we'll we'll help them do it. That's where we come in. Mm-hmm. We but it has to come from them. Mm-hmm. If they don't want our help, they won't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we we don't promote, we don't recruit, we don't advertise. Uh, they have, to, and that's why we get along with the gangs. Because uh, I remember talking to a higher up one day, and he says, uh, "Well, you're recruiting guys." I said, and I was talking to one of his gang member who was with a trade staff. I said, "No, talk to this guy. He came to me. I didn't go to him." Mm. And they all have to come to us. And when I was in jail, I insisted that if they were wanted to join straight up that they'd put it on paper that I had a, a note saying I want to see you to discuss straight up attraction not promotion they love it that's mm. right where'd that come from I don't know <laughs> <laughs> another place we're not supposed to talk about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so so and the other thing is at first the gang thought that straight up would go and rat guys out at the cops mm, okay and I remember one, right at the beginning, a young man, he was about 17, he just out of Kil, uh, Kil, uh, yeah, Kilburn, uh, Young Offenders, and he said, uh, I have to go talk to a police officer. He wants me to talk to him whatever time, and I said, I'll go with you. 
So I drove him down to the police station, and sure enough, the police officer was there. And I said to the police officer with the young man, I said, I'm going to sit, sit in on the conversation. And he said, no, you're not. I said, okay. I looked at the young man, and I said, the only questions you answer are questions that he asked about you. Any other question about anybody else or anything else, you keep your mouth shut. Don't say a word. Don't knock. Don't even say, I'm not going to answer that. Just don't say anything. And the cop could have <laughs> looked at the cop. So where did you pick up that insight? Common sense. That's fleeting these days, you know? No, it was just common sense. Yeah. I knew damn well, or sorry, I knew darn well that if he talked and disclosed names and places and times, mm -hmm. he's a dead man, that young man. The word would get out. Mm -hmm. And so it's just common sense. You keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Huh. And and the word got out amongst the gangs that straight up people don't write out. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to to give them a hard time. Yeah. They yeah. wanted to turn their lives around for their kids, for you know, they their family. Uh, and the gangs understand that. They're not they're not bad. They do bad things, but they're normal people. Mm -hmm. They understood why these guys wanted out of the gangs. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were Envious. God, mm. I wish I could do that. You get that? Do you, oh, do you yeah. hear that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I don't I don't go to the jails anymore. I don't have clearance. I'm too old and and I just can't do it. But when I was up there and say, Oh Andre, I'd just love to join you guys, but I just can't. And usually it was their addiction. Mm. Mm -hmm. We live on two twenty six Avenue V South, right in the middle of the hood. Yeah. We're surrounded by gang houses. Yeah. We were never tagged once. We were never attacked. You know, we were tagged. You know, they put yeah. their names on the on the buildings. Not, never, no, never broken into by gang members. Never. They all know who we are. Mm. They go by, and I give them a hard time and <laughs> <laughs> tease them, and they laugh, and mm -hmm. they go by. So you just you just show up. You just you don't you don't try to you know like you said you don't recruit and everybody like even no. in conversations when no. you're on the street and you run no. into someone. I never went in all this time to a young guy and said I think you should join you should join straight up. Never never. Hmm. If we did that, we'd be in trouble with the gangs. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The gangs know we don't recruit. They know that if a member comes to us, it's because a member wants to come to us. Mm -hmm. It's not us that's going searching for him mm -hmm. or her. Mm. And that's common knowledge uh, amongst uh, all of the gangs, except for the new, the younger ones. I mean, the younger ones sometimes are aggressive uh, towards straight up, but as they grow older into the, into the gangs, they realize where we stand in relationship to them. Yeah, you're not a threat. Well, the other thing is we have some of our members... Their sons and daughters are in the gangs. Some have brothers and sisters in the gangs. Mm -hmm. Some have moms and dads in the gang. I'm just talking to one last week. Uh, he joined the, the gang. He joined Straight Up because his auntie told him, you know, maybe you should look into Straight Up. Not from me, but his auntie, who is a member of Straight Up. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that do the the... The promotion, I guess, mm -hmm. not us as an organization. Mm. Our members do that. Yeah. So, but that's important. That's an important way, of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
because we're respected not only by the regular community of Saskatoon, but by the gang community of Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. Some don't, but generally they, they, they all do. Yeah. 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 So you, um, you started a tattoo removal program. Right. And, um, before we get in, I would, I would just like to, on behalf of my family, I would like to thank you for that, uh, removal program because Donna has a, a tattoo from some experiences yeah. that she had with gangs, not necessarily in a gang, but a gang member. And uh, you guys have stepped up and... Okay, I'll tell you a history on that. We used to have people in the community remove tattoos for free if they were straight-up members. Mm -hmm. And then that didn't work out too well. Um, and so, Why is it important? Well, let's go, it's, let's go back. it's a sign, it's a symbol. Yeah. Uh, and when they get the t the tattoo removed, it, it's like affirming that they are out of the gang. It's an affirmation. It's a, it's a breakdown. It's like a, a wedding. If you're wedding, if you got divorced and you take your wedding off, wedding ring, ring off, and okay. you throw it away, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you affirm the reality, mm -hmm. and that's important. Mm -hmm. And so we used to have people, two, two organizations, two uh, uh, tattoo removers in town that would do our members for nothing. Mm -hmm. But over time, that kind of didn't work out. And so our present director, and I have to admit, I am uh, strongly against providing services in Straight Up that are available in the community. Why is that? I want our members to integrate into the community. Mm -hmm. And if we provide the services, mm -hmm. they're not integrating. Mm -hmm. And our members have done a lot of damage in the communities. They have to give back to the community. Mm -hmm. And so if we start if we start providing services independently as all the available in the community, then we're competing with the community. Mm -hmm. And I'm strongly against that, but it's not a black and white thing. Mm -hmm. You know, housing is important. So now we have 12 housing, uh, 10 housing units. Tattoo removal is important. Let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, I was, you were there. I was talking about the tattoo removal of a two, these two young men who cooked their uh, gang symbol away on their hands. They burnt it, with a, burnt it off with a, a hot blade. Mm -hmm. They did that while they were in jail. That, in a sense, uh, validates the tattoo removal office that we have, which I was not in favor. But because the members were, and, and the direction, the management at that time was, fine, you know, like I'm not the boss here. Uh, we work together. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't have to agree with everything, if the consensus is that uh, this is, needs to happen, then that happens. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, we do have, but we, uh, I insist that we only provide that service to people on the edge. And that and, we don't provide that service to the regular, to communities at large. And to be clear on, on how this has impacted our family, the tattoo that, that Donna is currently having and removed was put there because she was somebody's property. That's right. So she was a person on the edge. She de definitely was. And so to me, that's, that that validates it. That's mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because that's part of the healing process. It, it certainly is for the entire family and sure. community. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's 
say for a moment, this recording is a time capsule. And I know that you wanted to uh, talk about uh, a few community things. Um, what would you like to tell future generations who want to heal and uh, aspire to do what you're doing? The first, well, what I'm doing, uh, and the first thing that, we, that needs to be understood is that our society, and I'll use the, the, the jails as an example. Mm -hmm. when, when a person joins a gang, it's because of the abuse, the, um, the addictions, the violence, uh, all of the things that they've experienced from conception. Mm-hmm till uh, 11, 12 years old. All of those things were the fuel that led them, the energy that led them to belonging to a gang. Or even just going to jail, being a criminal. So the root causes are the things that drive people. So if you, your root causes, you come from a healthy family, you know, semi-affluent and so forth and so forth, you'll probably end up a healthy individual in our in our society. Mm -hmm. The people that end up in jail are people and in gangs are hurting people. Mm -hmm. The way we solve that problem today, we put them in jail at the younger friend is at 12 years old, or we put them in corrections at 18, and if they serve for two years, we put them in the penitentiary. Mm -hmm. What we do with these people is to provide the same kind of experiences to turn their lives around that they experienced when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. So if someone's in jail, they're shamed, they're alienated, they're judged, they're labeled, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're isolated, isolated, uh, punished. And we're saying, by by giving by repeating what would happen to them when they were young, by repeating that when they're in, uh, older, that that's going to heal them. Mm -hmm. It's insanity. Mm -hmm. It's insane. And to me, that's that needs to change. And straight up today, we say there is another way. Mm -hmm. And the future, I think, is discover that other way. The other way is. Don't judge them. Understand them. Mm -hmm. Love them. Don't label them. You know, develop a relationship with these people. When I went to the jail, I asked myself, what's my relationship with the 350 guys? And I said, if I had a nephew here, what would be my relationship to this guy? Mm -hmm. He'd still be my nephew. And so I decided that every inmate was my nephew. Changed everything. You call him that? What's up, nephew? I'm sorry? You call them that? Say, oh, yeah, What's for up, nephew? sure. Or, oh, like buddy, friend, or give them a lot of love names, a lot mm -hmm. of hugs. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you you got to express it. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that. We say, oh, don't develop a relationship with your clients. What the hell? Mm -hmm. The only thing you have that's important is your relationship with your clients. A respect, of trust, of honesty, of humility. You don't have all the answers. Where does your arrogance come from? You know, you work at this together. Mm -hmm. And so we need to re-change and just change all our way of thinking and of doing things mm -hmm. with people on the edge. Mm -hmm. They're not there because they want to be. They're not there because they deserve to be. And so we got to think differently. we got to 
the, the, the judicial system, the penal system the, that we have in our country, in North America, is sicker than, the, 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 than anything else. We have a terribly sick system when it comes to hurting people on the edge. Mm. And until we start to realize that, look at the Scandinavian countries. Their approach is way different from ours. Of course, the social conditions are different, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, the way they do it, we need to learn from that. Mm -hmm. We cannot keep on giving back to these people what brought them to the, that situation in the first place, and mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. And expect them to heal. And expect them to heal. Mm -hmm. Correction doesn't heal anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm really angry about the fact that right now we're building a new jail in the Saskatoon Correctional Center to house 150 remand beds. Remand is for people who have not been found guilty yet. Yeah. And we're building that on what used to be the soccer field, the baseball diamond, and the hockey rink. That's where this new building is being built. Hmm. Does that make any sense? No. I mean, how do they think these guys are going to turn their lives around if they're isolated in their cell 24 hours a day? and yeah, Not even charged yet. Not even charged yet. Yeah. Um, most of the correctional people here in Saskatoon are, mm -hmm. are in remand. Mm -hmm. It's a sick system. And, uh, you think it's an addicted system? Oh, extremely addictive. Addicted mm -hmm. to self-righteousness, to uh, it's a colonial system. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, essentially, it's it's just ill. It's full of prejudice, prejudgment. Mm -hmm. It's systemic racism, a hundred percent. Well, I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, and that's everything that you had just just said. Yeah, just a minute and ago. You look at any jail in North America, mm -hmm. including the states, and so our systems are systemically insane. Mm -hmm. Not only racist, but insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whether it's uh, and I, you know, I, the police—they're—they're they're trying their best given the situations, but we're we're reaping uh, the results of a hundred and fifty, two hundred, three hundred years of colonialism and racism mm -hmm. and alienation and superiority, and uh, we still have the missionary complex that everybody should be like us. Mm. We still have the colonial uh, complex that we know better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. That's the, the Western European mindset. Yeah. And we spread that around the world, and we're still spreading it around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and what's going on in Israel and, uh, and uh, Palestine, Palestinian people, it's still more the same. You know, it's not unique to, to us. Mm -hmm. But uh, so we need to understand that we need, we need to be really clear about how we go about relating to one another. The jails provide good services. Mm -hmm. They feed the people. They house the people. They clothe the people. Is there any transformation? Maybe on the outside. <laughs> you mean outside the person? Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. on the inside, it doesn't no. matter outside. No. You know, and, and I saw, 
And and before we cap this off, that reminds me of a post that uh, Chantelle Hewell posted a little while ago talking about how um, she ran into someone on the street saying, um, what happened? And, and the guy said, I had, I was getting an education. I had clothes. I, I had a warm roof over my head. I, I had food. I, I had relationships. And, 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 and she asked, why are you on the street? And they said, cause they let me out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I think, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's been an honor having this conversation with you. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave us with today? Never give up. Never give up hope. Always believe, strongly believe that the little things that you do are important. Mm -hmm. uh, a smile, a hug, a welcome, a laugh, a joke. Uh, it's just be clear about your attitude towards people. Mm -hmm. What kind of a person are you and what do you project? Mm -hmm. Start from there. Awesome. And if you don't know where to start, start from your story. Mm. What kind of a person are you that made you the person that you are? And are you okay with that? Before we let you go, we've got one comment. Chantal Huell wow. says, thank you, Andre, for loving us when we couldn't love ourselves. Thanks so much, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. T take care. Well, I don't know if this was good, but. <laughs> oh, we're still on. <laughs> <laughs> if you like what you're if you like what you heard today if you got something out of it please give us a like at the bottom of the screen if you're not yet subscribed or please do that hit that notification button we go live every friday morning every saturday night every sunday night sorry and we got lots of content for you to catch up on that's it for now take care everyone say this is hard knocks talks <laughs>